is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we like to tell stories about everything here on this show, art, commerce, history, faith. And this one is a local story. I mean, it's a story that, well, it could happen anywhere in the country and does happen anywhere in the country. And Sammy Smith works here at Ole Miss in Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast just about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee. And he's the director of character development for Ole Miss football uh, with a fellowship of Christian athletes. And Sammy Smith, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You bet. Sammy, let's start where we always start when we do our in-depth with uh, people we talk to on the show in our in-depth segments. And talk about where you were born and talk about your parents. Well, I was born in a little small town um, in Florida. I actually, the town that I was born in was not small. It was Orlando. I was born in Orlando uh, Memorial Hospital, but I, uh, my parents lived in a little small town called Zellwood. Uh, very few people there. Um, it was a community that was a migrant community uh, known for farming. Uh, one of the things that Zellwood, Florida, was famous for was corn. Uh, we had a, a corn festival every May that people would come from all over the country to come be a part of. So um, I grew up there in that area. I had a great mom and dad. Uh, two younger brothers, and uh, uh, that's where I spent the first, you know, 18 years of my life. I went to uh, uh, Popka High School, which is a school just north of Orlando, Florida. And, and talk about the the community, the the mixture of people who live there. You said it was a migrant community. Talk about the, the mix of folks that live there, the types of people who are your neighbors. Well, um, the community that I was in was, was more of a black community, but uh, across the tracks, you know, we had uh, – uh, Caucasian people. There were some uh, Hispanic people that lived in the area, uh, so it was a it was a nice mixture of folks. Um, I went to school with uh, uh, both Hispanics and uh, Caucasian folks, so it wasn't like I was in a in a community that was just uh, segregated or anything. You know, we were all um, a part of a, a great little community in Zellwood, and some of my uh, dearest and longest friends now are some of those people that I grew up with as a child. That's great. And talk about then your, when did you first know you had uh, some athletic talent? Talk about your first discovery about your, your abilities uh, on the gridiron and in other places. Talk about sports in general. If something tells me you may have been good at more than one sport, Sammy. Well, I started playing football in the streets of Zellwood. We played sandlock football. You don't see kids doing that a lot now. No, you but don't. But, man, we used to uh, have some hard, you know, no pads, tackling football, and uh, enjoyed it. Uh, it was something that we were raised doing, and I think that's why our football program at Apopka, even to this day, is still is a great program. Um, so just love the game of football. Uh, my dad played football when he was in, a younger man and in high school, and uh, he grew up in a time when, of course, there was a – it was during segregation, so he didn't have an opportunity to go off to college. But So I always had to hear about – uh, how great a football player he was. And uh, they used to call my dad the goose. And I had to hear stories all the time about, man, whenever we went to watch your dad play, we 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 waiting for him to make a big play so we could say the goose is on the loose. <laughs> so, you know, that's the community that I grew up in. I grew up uh, probably at the age of 10 years old. I noticed that I had a lot of uh, special abilities because I was able to play with the kids that were, you know, 13, 14 years old and, you know, mix it up right with them. And your size, by the time you were a senior, uh, talk about your size, your speed, and what, what you did on the gridiron, you know, how you uh, ran, the number of yards you accumulated. 
Uh, you had some kind of high school record, Sammy. Well, I um, grew up loving track and field. Uh, I was a sprinter, but I was a big sprinter. Um, all through middle school, I won, you know, county track meets in the 100 and 200 meters. And then I went to high school. And, you know, in high school, I was a big tailback. I was 215, 20 pounds. And, you know, I was a 4-3-40 guy. I was a 10-300 meter guy, state champion, 100 meter, state champion, 200 meter guy. And ran track all through college and high school. And uh, just God just blessed me with a lot of ability. So I, I came out during the era where my favorite player was Herschel Walker. So, and I kind of modeled my game after him. I, I, I was in that mold of a Herschel Walker, Bo Jackson type tailback. Yeah, and those were guys that had the size and the speed, one at Auburn, of course, and uh, one at the University of Georgia. And so you, you get all kinds of offers. What's this like as a high school senior? And so many of us see this, this pressure on young athletes, but there are also some great opportunities. And I would assume that there, you had a lot of great coaches calling on you and your family. Um, how did your family handle all that, by the way? And how did they keep you humble when all this was happening? Because, my goodness, it's so easy for a young athlete to forget that they're human beings and they're like everyone else in the school. How did they keep you in place? How did you come to the decision to pick the college you picked? Well, I had a great high school football coach, Coach uh, Chip Gerke. And uh, I was blessed enough to have uh, a, a couple of guys that kind of went on before me out of my high school uh, one of the guys that, that that grew up in my neighborhood that was probably, you know, five, four or five years older than me. His name was Cedric Anderson. He was one of the first ones from our high school to to go big time college football, and he went to Ohio State. And uh, so I had the opportunity to for him to come back during the summers and you know kind of talk to us and encourage us of how to uh, what to expect on the next level. And I started going to FSU football camps, I think, when I was probably in eighth grade. And, and that's I, Florida State. Florida State. And I, I just fell in love with Coach Bowden, uh, his staff that was there. Uh, University of Florida was an hour and a half away from me, and I would go up sometimes to watch their games. But uh, Tallahassee was my draw. You know, that's, it, it kind of drew me there, and I, I just loved that community. Uh, had a little um, – uncertainty about where I was going to go when I was being recruited because I was recruited by some great people. Uh, Vince Dooley, I had a great amount of respect for him at Georgia. And again, I told you earlier, I was a Herschel Walker fan, so I loved Georgia. And then Bo Schembechler out at Michigan, I visited there and just just loved Coach Schembechler. So, you know, three of the probably best coaches at that time were coaches that I really had an affinity for. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, I just – couldn't see myself going anywhere other than being in Tallahassee and playing for Coach Bowden and the coaching staff that was there and and uh, the great class that we had that came in that year. You know, Deion Sanders, a good friend of, friend of mine now that was a part of that freshman class that we brought in in 1985 at Florida State. Well, the Florida boy stays home in Florida. When we come back, more of the life of Sammy Smith, an Oxford man now, a Florida man most of his life, uh, but we like to call him a fellow Oxonian. And when we come back, more of Sammy's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. In our in-depth hour today, we spent it with someone local, and you may not know the name. If you're a football fan, you do, and you remember it, uh, Sammy Smith. And we left off with Sammy choosing Florida State and a legendary coach, Bobby Bowden. And talk about, first of all, what you saw in Bobby, and we've had Bobby on the show, and talk about what your parents saw in Bobby, because I'm sure your parents had something to do with his choice. If you have any kind of parents, I know my parents had a lot to do with almost every major decision I had in my life. Even today, I still talk to my dad about things I'm going to do next. Uh, talk about those things. Well, just just what a great recruiter Coach Bowden was. I mean, when you hear the stories about how he came come into uh, players' homes and uh, the immediate impact that he had on the moms, well, those are true because he came into my house and uh, uh, I knew right away that, Certainly, I wanted to go to Florida State, but just him coming and interacting with my mom and dad just kind of you know stamped the seal. I mean, they loved him. Uh, they knew that he would be a coach that uh, would would care for us. You know, our, his players would care for me. Uh, would go out of the way to make sure that um, I was doing things the right way. Um, that would be a, a father figure towards uh, me away from home. Uh, he was just a great man, a man that uh, uh, had, you know wore, wore his faith on his sleeves and on his shoulders. He was just a great, great, great man, and uh, uh, without a doubt, probably the most influential man I've had in my life outside of my dad. Uh, he was just a great, great, great coach to play for. And by the way, we hear this over and over again. We've heard this on our, on our hour on Bear Bryant. We heard it on our hour with John Wooden, guys talking about Coach Wooden 10, 20, 30, 40 years after having experience with Indeed, when we played the uh, funeral eulogies of Coach Wooden, mm-hmm. it was remarkable to see men in their 50s, 60s, And this went beyond race, class, creed. It was he loved me like a father. Mm-hmm. He was hard on me, but I needed that kind of hard. But he was never mean to me, and he's always building me up. And he always expected more out of me than I did. And that was really the remarkable part of Coach Wooden's legacy. And by the way, we learned that Coach had a deep, deep and abiding faith. Mm-hmm. Um, ESPN rarely covers these matters, the faith of so many of these coaches. They sort of leave it out and shame on them. Again, again this faith crosses races. We did Eddie Robinson's story. And my goodness, the degree to which he appealed to the moms and the mm-hmm. dads as he recruited people and young, young men in particular to grambling was an integral part of his life. Same with Bear Bryant. Talk a bit about some of the things you learned as a young man playing for uh, Coach Bowden. Well, you know, you don't know it at the time, but uh, coaches in general and, and people that are impacting your lives, can speak things into your life that, uh, that, that, that don't show up until later in life. And uh, uh, that's what happened with me. I, I knew who Coach Bowden was. I always had a great relationship with him, uh, knew what he stood for. And it would be later on in my life uh, when I would go through some, some difficult times that I would remember something that he said, you know, that would encourage me to, uh, to get up and to keep going and to keep pressing forward. And, uh, uh, again, just a tremendous uh, leader, um, I've had the opportunity now working for FCA for about six years now on many occasions to be at different places where he's speaking for FCA and I'm the one that's uh, introducing him and sharing you know, a story or two here. And uh, I get more gratitude out of that uh, than I ever did as a player because I get to really express you know, who he is to me, uh, what he's meant to me. And it's not even about the football, but it's about the 
the other life lessons and things that I've uh, learned through his uh, tutelage. Indeed, and you wish that sometimes kids in schools had that kind of tutelage inside the school and not just on the gridiron. And it's something we talk about time and again is some of these unique relationships that get forged between coaches and players, and yet teachers don't get that same latitude to either punish, reward. Mm -hmm. They're sort of restricted to just handling the kid on the curriculum level, mm-hmm. level and not on the moral level and the development of character level, which is in the end what life's all about. Yeah. Let's talk about your, your performance on the gridiron, Sammy. I mean, you had quite a career at Florida State. Highlight it for us. Top line for folks who aren't football fans, what that career looked like at FSU. Well, I came in um, really a highly rated offensive player. I think I was a top running back in the country that year coming out and uh, went there with great expectations and uh, certainly there were expectations that I placed on myself, uh, too. And uh, uh, Florida State at that time was sort of uh, in the bottom, you know, feeder of college. We, they weren't really that good, but uh, I saw something in Florida State that I thought uh, could be tremendous down the road. And uh, when I signed there and got Deion Sanders to sign, and uh, we had guys, uh, Chip Ferguson, uh, Peter Tom Willis, just to name a few guys, uh, Pat Tomlin, and we had an amazing football class, and uh, I saw the opportunity that down the road we would be a great football program. And and to just see that happen, I think, in 1987 was when I had a breakout year. I had my best year there at Florida State, and, and uh, man, we had a fun offense. You know, we ran the ball. We threw it around a lot. Um, I think I averaged over seven yards a carry that year. Um, I, I used to always – uh, tell my running back coach, Coach Billy Sexton, man, you guys should have gave me the ball about seven or eight more times a game. I, I might have been able to get 2,000 yards. But, um, you know, just a jo- enjoyable time there. I held the single-season rushing record there, I think, for about seven or eight years prior to uh, work done coming and having a spectacular year. And certainly uh, his record has since been broke, broken by Dalvin Cook. And now we got a, a young one down there now that, that could uh, – rewrite all the record books if he stays there for four years, uh, Cam Akers. Oh, you bet, you bet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in, and rooting for them, I know, because so many athletes I know, they love having, mm-hmm. you know, they love having the records, but you know, great, great athletes are mm-hmm. also rooting for that next generation to surpass them if they can. Let's talk about uh, all that attention. You're, you're now getting ready to go into the NFL. What's that like? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of you guys aren't, you're playing with aren't going to make it to the NFL. You're now picked and you're drafted. Uh, there's a lot of joy in that, but yet you're leaving some of the guys mm-hmm. behind, too. What's that like, um, and how do you handle all that? Because now you're going to the big leagues, and with that comes a lot of accolades, a lot of, well, all kinds of other things come that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, money comes that way, something you didn't have like you were about to have. And talk about that. Put, put, put us in your shoes mm-hmm. as a young man about to go from a, a guy with maybe enough scratch and enough money in your pocket to take your girl out to Denny's, and now you're a mm-hmm. multimillionaire overnight. Well, I tell you, that that's one of the, the, the things I enjoy most about uh, the role I have now and the position I'm in now is that, um, you know, you go through things in life and, 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 and you maybe they're not the best things. Sometimes they are good. Uh, but any of those uh, situations are a benefit to other people. And uh, I get to share that, that opportunity that I had years ago to become an NFL football player and um, the, the the good choices that I made, the bad choices that I made that would hopefully uh, encourage uh, young men to uh, do things the right way, you know, see things a little different. Because at that age, I think it's no different now than it was then. Um, you, you you think you're invincible. 
you're getting ready to have uh, the time of your life, and uh, you don't really realize that, man, that, that God has blessed you with this opportunity, but that opportunity is, is, is uh, finite. You know, it's not an infinite opportunity. It's going to come and it's going to go. And uh, what you do with that small window that God has given you to be a, a professional football player matters. And uh, so, you know, uh, I was excited just like anyone else would be that I was going to be able to do for my parents, going to be able to have things that I wanted to have and uh, uh, be able to create a life for myself. I was married at the time with a with a little girl, so I was excited about being able to provide for my family and uh, take care of my, my little girl and my wife, but certainly um, um, made some choices and, 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 and mistakes that uh, cost me dearly. Talk to us now. You're, you're in the NFL. Um, who, who drafts you? It's, again, a Florida team. It's the Miami Dolphins. Um, who are you playing with? Who's your coach? What's going on? And talk about your NFL career. Well, I was drafted in 1989 by the Miami Dolphins, as you mentioned. Uh, coach Don Shula was my coach. Uh, Dan Marino was my quarterback. We had great, great players there. Uh, Mark Duper, Mark Clayton, receivers, Jim Jensen. Um, but but that was what that was. You know, I got an opportunity to play in my home state and was excited about the opportunity to play for the Miami Dolphins and uh, uh, was really looking forward to having a great career there. And, uh you know, as, as, as things would turn out, uh, it wasn't the career that I really expected. You know, I, one of the things that I, I share with uh, our young men now is because a lot of these young men, they come from small communities. I left a little small town of Zellwood. I went to Tallahassee, which at the time seemed like a metropolis to me, but it was small. And then to leave there and to go to Miami was a, certainly a life-changing event for me. Um, um, just a, a whole different world down in Miami you know, for, for a small-town boy like myself and uh, uh, got involved with uh, uh, different people, met a lot of different people, and just uh, got exposed to a whole different world than I was really used to. Yeah, and it's hard to prepare anybody for something mm-hmm. like that. You can tell them about it. You can lecture them about it. But one day they got to actually experience it themselves and make some choices, mm-hmm. and they're going to make some good ones, and you can bet at that age they're almost guaranteed to make some bad ones, no matter yes. what the upbringing. It's just that's life. We all make good and bad choices, and hopefully we can learn from them. Well, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Sammy Smith from small-town Florida to big-time football in Florida and to the NFL. And the rest of this story, well, it just gets better. It gets more complicated, and it gets deeper and more beautiful as we continue it. This is Lee Habib, Sammy Smith's story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation, our in-depth conversation, and we love digging in and doing deep dives with some of the big leaders in this country, and you've heard us do segments on all kinds of them, and go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to our leadership series and the beginning of our in-depth series, and we continue again with Sammy Smith. 1990 is a tough year for you, Sammy, and let's start first with the loss of your two-month-old son, Jared, to infant death syndrome. By the way, on this show, we spend a month 
um, honoring the loss of, of sudden death mm-hmm. uh, and infant, de- and infant loss and, and, of course, miscarriages, too. Um, not enough time is spent on this. And millions and millions of Americans, and women in particular, uh, when they go through a miscarriage, it is simply the worst moment of their mm-hmm. life. And yet, because it's not a born baby, well, a lot of people just sort of discount it. And they don't understand that woman to that woman mm-hmm. and to that husband. That was a baby that just uh, was lost. And yeah. talk about that loss and what it what it did to you, Sammy. Well, that 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 was a time in my life when I believe that uh, God was really moving and working some things and really trying to get me in a in a state in my life to where I would would really seek Him, you know, seek God and and, and understand and and realize where all the blessings had come from me. I think at, at some point in my life during that time, I kind of forgot where I came from. And it started really with uh, uh, my career that year, that season. I had uh, a really bad, uh, it wasn't that bad, but I had a knee injury in uh, preseason football that kept me out of the preseason and had to come back and perform and didn't perform that well. And and then I had to, this happen with my son. Um, and my son was two months old. i never forget that night. It was a uh, a bye week, actually, and I was home. I uh, went to Orlando that weekend and um, left Miami. And that same night that I left to go to Orlando, something told me, go home. So I left a bunch of friends that were hanging out with me at, at one of the clubs there. And, and I got in my car and drove back to Miami. Now, mind you, I just drove three and a half hours to spend the weekend down there, but something was drawing me back home. And I would get home about, uh, two thirty, three o'clock in the morning. Uh, my wife didn't even know I was coming home, and the first place I went to was my son's crib. And when I reached in there to to, to, to check on my son, I felt this cold body, and you know he had passed. And I know that that was a that was a God moment. That was a God thing. I, I know that He wanted me to be there. He wouldn't have wanted my wife to wake up that next morning and be there. And I'm wailing Orlando, and she's in Miami, and we've got a son that's passed. So. Um, that was a time in my life that was uh, really traumatic. It was a time that um, I really questioned God, um, really couldn't understand how I could uh, God would allow us to have a, a son and allow us to only have him for two months and then take him. So I was in a really depressed state at that time. And let's talk about next, the uh, and this is the, the trauma that perhaps really sparks almost a new awakening in your life. Uh, but it may have been the low point as well, mm-hmm. and that's uh, being arrested uh, for drug charges. Mm-hmm. And and talk about that, uh, Sammy. How did this happen? How did how did the arrest occur? And what what was this like mm-hmm. for you, for your family, particularly, and and friends? Uh, what were you going through? Talk about these moments. Well, this was after my career, after a four year career. I was out of football and. Uh, I had moved back home. I had left Denver. That was the last team I played for and, and uh, certainly had had some traumatic uh, things happen with the loss of my son, with the with the way my career had ended, ended with an injury and uh, my performance. And, and I came back to Florida wanting to do some positive things. I had started a company and was building homes for uh, people that couldn't afford homes, and we were holding mortgages just trying to – help people out in our community to be able to have nice homes. And uh, uh, I got around some friends. There was one particular friend that came to me and asked me, could he borrow some money? And I was well off, and I loaned him money. And it was less than a week later, he came back and paid me. You know, it was $10,000. And 
and he paid me money on top of it. And of course, I want to know how how can you afford to pay me money like this? And and that's where it all got started. He was involved in drugs, and and I want to know more about it. And that's that's what the enemy does when you're trying to live and 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 the and the and to do things the right way. The enemy will always come at you with some form of way of getting you back or getting his hooks in you. And uh, I made the choice to get involved with some friends and. Uh, it would be 10 months later, man, I'm getting a knock on my door. It's the DEA. You know, I'm in some serious trouble. And uh, I really didn't know how I had allowed that to happen. That, that first night I got arrested, man, I, it was just mind-boggling to me that I had let that happen, that, that, that stepped that low into getting involved into something that I had never agreed with, had always encouraged these guys to try and do something better. And what I found myself was, man, my identity was always placed in sports and in football. And and, and, and I found during that time that um, that was God's way of, of, of allowing me to really see how important it was for my identity to be, be in him. And I, that first night I got arrested, man, I never forget sitting in the Orange County Jail. And uh, that's the first night that I was fully broken and knowing that, you know, man, there was another way for me. And I asked God to change me right then. And there, knowing what I was facing, uh, I apologized to God for how unfrugal I had been with all the gifts and talents that he had given me, and I asked him for another opportunity, whenever that was going to come, for me to be able to serve and to be a, a different person and to be able to make a difference in people's lives. Well, and you knew it right away, which was good, and, 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 and responded to that right away. And uh, the, the, the fact that you were an NFL athlete, well, the media had to just – Eat this mm-hmm. up, Sammy. I mean, sometimes you get disparate treatment in this great country because you're poor, mm-hmm. sometimes because you're black, and sometimes because you're rich. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, you learn quickly that sometimes somebody like a Martha Stewart can find herself mm-hmm. under the crossfire because she's Martha Stewart. Yes. And uh, talk about that, that media frenzy and what that felt like. Well, I can remember being able to watch some of it on the news from jail, and I can remember the uh, the media being in our community and being in the communities that were close around, you know, Zellwood, Apopka, uh, Mount Dora, those areas, and kind of interviewing people. And, and people knew my character, and they they knew that that wasn't Sammy Smith. So you got all these people that, that loved me that were, you know, doing interviews saying, no way, they're, 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 you know, they're pinning this on Sammy. He would never do this. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, no, I did it. And how, how did I allow this to happen? How did I allow the enemy to fool me like this? And it was hurtful. Um, you know, the, the, the local policemen uh, and the uh, Metro Bureau of Investigative People and the sheriff, uh, they all painted the picture that I was this uh, kingpin of a drug dealer that had been involved in drugs for many years, which was certainly a, a lie. Uh, but I was the one with the name, you know, of all of my co-defendants. I was the one that was Sammy Smith. I was the NFL guy. I was the one that they was going to make the case on Yep. and that it was going to be all in the newspaper. And I think I even had an article in Jet Magazine back then. <laughs> so it was, it was uh, I tell you, it was pretty uh, humbling. Um, and it was uh, something that, that really brought out humility in me. To know that, uh, man, I, that that could happen to me, it could happen to anyone. But I accepted my responsibility. I knew that I had made a, a horrible choice, and all I could do at that time was uh, ask for forgiveness, you know, and, and ask God to forgive me and my family to forgive me. 
and uh, to just pray that uh, God would be lenient and I would be able to move on from that and then be able to make a difference. And I tell you, God, is he's really done everything I've asked him. Well, when we come back, the rest of the story, this is the beautiful part of the story, and so many of our lives are informed this way. We have to dig ourselves or drive ourselves right into a ditch in order to find mm-hmm. out what our lives are really all about, who our friends really are, and what life's all about. This is Lee Habib, Sammy Smith's story, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're talking to Sammy Smith. And last time we were with you, uh, you'd heard about Sammy talking about, well, being in being in jail and knowing that, well, he had made some bad decisions. Uh, the press, of course, had done what the press always does, and the press is, well, it's always been the same way, wanting to make money off people's pain and suffering, and they'll always be that way. Uh, but Sammy had to deal with real life and his family and seeking forgiveness. And so, Sammy, you, you find yourself with a whole new set of uh, roommates uh, <laughs> in prison. And a lot of guys who'd made some bad mm-hmm. choices, but human beings. And we talk a lot about inmates on this show here in Our American Stories because there, there are folks in these prisons and they need our attention. There are our brothers, there are our sisters, and they're friends. And mm-hmm. we, we've all made mistakes there before the grace of God go all of us in these measures. Um, what did you learn about so many of the people you were living with now for for and how many years were you living with him there? Well, Sammy? I was at uh, I was in federal prison for right at six years. Um, I started my uh, sentence in uh, Coleman Correctional Facility, federal facility there in Florida, uh, which was probably an hour from my home, uh, which was a good spot because you know I got to see family all the time and my daughter. Uh, but man, you know, my heart went out to some of the. Uh, men that were in that facility, uh, young men, uh, old men, uh, um, people that weren't going to have a second chance. You know, I had, I got 87 month sentence, which was a little over seven years, but there were guys in there with life sentences for the same, uh, uh, distressions that I had, but some of them had multiple, you know, distressions. They were career guys and that had been in trouble all their lives. And, um, but man, what great people. I got an opportunity to meet some of the most genuine people uh, inside than I ever met outside. And I had an opportunity to really just kind of do life with them for the time I was in there to be able to share my experiences and to be able to share, um, you know, my shortcomings and be able to share, you know, how I believe God was changing me at that time and what he was going to do when I got out. And I think one of the most blessed opportunities I've had, and I've had a chance to speak on many occasions was being able to go back to that same uh, 
facility that I started a sentence in 18 years prior and go back in and speak to young men that were in there and, and to let them know that there's hope and there's opportunities when you get out, uh, if you'll change your life and uh, decide to seek uh, God. And so much of, of that life, there isn't hope. Mm-hmm. There's not enough contact with the outside world. And there's certainly, Sammy, and this is a tough word for men to use, but there's not enough love. Mm-hmm. And so talk about that. And what, what did you start to do? Were you, were you uh, of, of the knowledge then that you had a ministerial quality to you, that you could minister to other men? When did this, when did this come upon you, that you had either this gift, this talent, or this desire? Well, I know while I was there, I started seeking God and I started asking, you know, you know, how can I make a difference, God? What would you want me to do when, when this is all is open, over and when the door is open for me to leave here? And uh, I knew that I had a story to tell. I knew that God was going to bless me tremendously. I knew that I would be able to put my life back together because God promised that, you know. And uh, so when I got out, I still was a little... Um, Shaky, you know, I still was kind of concerned with what people thought, and you know, man, did they look at me as that's that's Sammy Smith? He had it all, and he threw it threw away, it away and, yep. you know, and and so I still had those little reservations, you know, and then um, I got blessed to be honest with you, man, to meet a wonderful woman when I got out, and uh, we start dating, and I start hearing some of her story, and I start thinking to myself, man, how, how could I'm sitting here in self pity with everything that. Uh, my future wife, who's my wife now, had, had gone through, and uh, uh, I was getting opportunities to share and to speak, and I would always choose the little things. You know, I was getting opportunities to speak at big events, but I was trying to find the little things just to speak to a few kids, and and uh, i never forget, it was probably not 2010, uh, the FCA director for Orlando area had found my number some kind of way, and he called me and asked me would I come and share at the Capital One Bowl uh, FCA breakfast and it was Alabama and Michigan State playing in the game and I remember hanging you know telling him before hanging up hey I'm gonna have to check my schedule I'm not sure I can I'll be available to do that and it was gonna be a thousand people there at this event right and I hung the phone up with him and immediately God spoke to me and said how long are you gonna hold in the testimony that I've given you I'm giving you opportunity after opportunity to share you promised me when you were in prison you was gonna share your testimony and I call wave Robinson is his name. I called him right back within less than five minutes. And I told him that I was clear and that I I could do it. And I tell you, that event really changed my life. Just being able to go there and to share that. I I saw that God had given me something through the experiences that I had gone through that could be positive and that could help other people out. And uh, I've been sharing ever since. You know, and that little thing, that little voice that stops you from sharing, of course, is pride. Mm-hmm. And we know that that pride tries to separate us from other people. Yes. And like it look like we're more important, we're better. And then the second we let go of that pride, it's when we start to connect yes. with other human beings. We play uh, an hour on Chuck Colson every year. He's one of my personal heroes mm-hmm. and what happened to him in prison and how we learned that he'd been just living this wretched, prideful life. Yeah. And that once he was able to testify about his shortcomings, suddenly he had friends for the yes. first time. He had relationships for the first time. And his faith in, in, in God brought him so much closer, not just to, mm-hmm. to, to friends that he lost, but to friends he'd never knew he'd had. Yes. Uh, and it was beautiful. And they weren't his friends because he was Mr. Powerful Lawyer at the White House. Right. And they weren't your friends because you were Mr. Running Back at the Miami Dolphins. Mm-hmm. 
you were just Sammy. That's right. Sammy the guy. That's right. And uh, that's so hard. Tell us a little bit about your bride. Here's this woman who uh, I, I would only uh, venture to guess blew you away because here she is loving a guy who's just, as some people would see it, blown it all. And, well, you, you had a criminal record, and she's offering you the kind of love that you, you can only ask for in life, which is unconditional mm-hmm. love. No judgment. Finding you at a point in your life that's mm-hmm. got to be as, you know, just coming out of prison, having lost everything, a really difficult place to be. And there she is with open arms. Uh, talk a bit about her. Well, um, I was on supervised release at the time. That's when, you know, I was at a halfway house and you get a opportunity to go home on the weekends. I think I had about five or six months of halfway house time. So I was in Tampa, Florida, and then I would get a furlough or whatever, a weekend pass to go home. And it just so happened one of those weekends I was home, uh, my wife now, Shalanda, uh, had come to our home. My dad, God bless his soul, he just passed this August, but he worked for a tile company. And whenever they had discontinued tile, he would get, you know, crates of tile. And he had a big uh, storage shed in the back that we kept it in. And people got to know my dad as the tile man. And uh, she had just built a home and uh, had come over with uh, a couple of other friends of hers looking for Sammy Smith Sr., my dad. And they were looking at tile, and she was trying to find some tile for her house. And I saw her, and I was like, wow, you know. And I ended up asking one of my cousins about her that that knew the other two people that she was with. And and he knew her, and he told me, you know, she's a a wonderful young lady. Um, She's got a son. Um, she's single, but she's got a great heart. She's a Christian, and I wanted to meet her. And so we arranged to be able to meet, and uh, she gave me a little hard time there for a little while. She was kind of ducking me, but uh, I was persistent. And then we started dating, and uh, life has been just amazing ever since. Uh, we've been married now for 13, 13 years, and then we dated for probably three or four years prior. So for all the families that have somebody in, in, in the system, uh, or, or they know a kid who's about to go into that system. We know the kids. You know, the teachers know. They know the kids who are going to probably end up in jail. A lot of them are fatherless. Some of them have fathers, but a lot of them are fatherless. And then others, well, they have some friends that are questionable and might lead them to these places. And so um, we, we, we personally in our family have a, a nephew who's in, 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 in prison mm-hmm. here in the state of Mississippi, and we, we visit him and we pray for him, and he's made some bad choices, and he's trying to straighten up his life. But without that communication from the outside world, he'd have no choice and no chance, mm-hmm. I don't think. Um, talk to, to the family members who are going through this, because it's tough. I mean, the, the family has to deal with all the outside world, their opinions, their chattering, their gossiping. Uh, some advice to family members who have family in prison and also to total strangers mm-hmm. um, who live near a prison and might be able to just go and visit some of these men and women locked up. So some advice to people. Listening you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, the word of God tells us to love our neighbors. And, uh, um, you know, these young men and these young women that are in situations that have gotten them into prison, uh, they need love. Uh, they don't need their families to turn their backs on them. They, they don't need their friends uh, to turn their backs on them. They need those uh, people that are that are out in the world and, uh, and that are um, living life to, to continue to pray for them, uh, to continue to support them, to, to continue to encourage them, and to just be there for them. You know, you know God works in mysterious ways. Uh, I think, you know, in, in retrospect, I would never choose to want to have to go through what I went through, but I would not choose it if it got me to where I'm at today. So in other words, I'm thankful for 
the opportunity I had to get in trouble and go to prison because it made me the man that I am today. And uh, that's what I pray for, for people that are in prison, that, that whatever uh, God has in store for them that needs to be worked out and that's the route that he sent them, that his work will be done and that they'll, they'll come out whole and uh, be able to have productive lives. But they certainly need the support of uh, their family and their friends. Well, on those notes, Sammy, thank you for sharing the story. Sammy Smith's story, and by the way, his bride's story, and his family's story, a redemptive story, a story of love, and a great Christian story here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we love talking about work, entrepreneurship and taking care of each other and this next story combines all of those things in a very special coffee shop Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina and it's run by people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who might otherwise not have a choice to work and today we have on the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee with us Amy Wright Amy, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for that nice introduction, Lee. Um, glad to be joining you today. Well, Amy, before we get into the business, the idea, this beautiful story, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family, where you grew up, and, and how you got to this place where you were thinking about doing something like this. Sure. Well, I was born in New Jersey, uh, but I spent very little time there. My family quickly moved on to Erie, Pennsylvania, where I spent... Uh, through fifth grade, we lived there, and then uh, my family decided to move south, and um, we settled in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I spent the rest of my years uh, through high school, and uh, I'm the oldest of five children, so we had a really, you know, fun upbringing, um, very tight-knit family, and uh, I just I loved my childhood, and even back then, uh, my parents say I had quite the entrepreneurial spirit because <laughs> it was not uncommon for me to host weekend talent shows where the whole neighborhood would get involved or, um, you know, do little uh, lemonade stands uh, every weekend. So I always loved small business and um, just trying to try new things and involve my siblings. So that was that was my upbringing. Uh, when I decided to go to college, I wanted to major in musical theater. I was very uh, into the arts and ended up going to the Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, where I met Mr. Wright, I like to say, my husband, Ben Wright, and I met there during my senior year in college, and we just fell in love instantly. We were um, We met in September. 
we were engaged that New Year's Eve, and we married in May. And uh, after that, we moved directly to New York City because I wanted to pursue acting at that time. And and Ben had had a professional acting career prior to meeting me, and so um, moving back to New York City was a no-brainer for him as well. So we moved um, back to New York. Well, I moved for the first time. He moved back to New York, and um, we pursued acting careers and did that for a while and realized that we were spending more time apart than together because of different jobs that came up. And so uh, after about a year and a half of doing that, we decided we were going to settle down in the South, closer to my family, and um, have kind of a more typical life that way. And so we did that, and we hadn't been there but a few months when um, Ben's agent called from New York and said, do you want to um, go on a national tour of a show called State Fair? which uh, he ended up playing the Pat Boone role in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, he said, well, I'm interested, but I'm not leaving my wife again after having spent the first year and a half of our marriage apart from each other so much. So I ended up auditioning for the show, and we, I got in the show, and we ended up traveling the country doing that. And the show actually ended up going to Broadway, and I had my little taste of Broadway and um, kind of checked that box and said, okay, let's start a family. So <laughs> after that, we ended up back in North Carolina again and um, started raising a family. So, and when we ended up back in North Carolina at that point, we settled in Wilmington. So we've been here in Wilmington, North Carolina, just over 20 years and um, started our family here and, and um, have four beautiful children, um, two teenage daughters, one that's going off to college this fall. Uh, the second one is going to be a senior in high school. And and then um, Bo was born, he'll be 13 in July. So um, he came along and, and then uh, five years later, his little sister, Jane, which we ended up calling Biddy because she's so itty bitty. Um, so our kids range in age from seven to 18. Um, and I can, you know, share more about them, but I, I, feel, I don't want to ramble too much. Let me know. <laughs> feel no, free no. To rein tell, me in. <laughs> tell us, uh, you tell us a little bit about about the the four of them, what they're interested yeah. in. Yeah, they're the joys yeah. of your life, and I think it's people who love yeah. life and love kids like you do that also love these special needs kids. So talk yeah. about those kids of yours. Yeah. So my kids are amazing. Um, before Bo was born, uh, Ben and I had had very little exposure to people with disabilities. You know, back when I was growing up, um, I, the kids who attended the public high school that I attended that had special needs were really um, kind of tucked away. And so, you know, I look back on those years and I really feel like I missed out on forming some meaningful relationships with people who I would have been great friends with but just had never been exposed to. And um, so when Bo came along and he was diagnosed with Down syndrome, Ben and I were paralyzed for a while because we had really never known anybody with Down syndrome and were scared of what we didn't know and spent, you know, a while educating ourselves about the diagnosis. And, you know, looking back on that, um, it was a very scary and... um, embarrassing time, you know, when I look back and I think about how we reacted at first because of what we didn't know. Mm -hmm. And um, 
the the interesting blessing um, that followed was that Biddy was born with Down syndrome too, and so um, by the time we had Biddy's diagnosis, you know, we were so excited because we knew what Down syndrome was, and we knew what a blessing bow was in our lives, and we were ready and and just so excited that Biddy was joining our family too, and that she also had Down syndrome. Well, when Um, we come back, you hold that thought right there. When we come back, more with Amy Wright, and that's the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina. And already, folks, you're getting a a taste for the heart and the soul of this lady. And know that in this country, uh, the chances of a a young person uh, and a baby being diagnosed with Down syndrome and coming to live is very low. Uh, upwards of 70% of kids are terminated before they're born. And we like to talk about that here on the show and educate people about the, the joys and beauty uh, that, that uh, kids who are born with disabilities uh, can bring to a family and to a community. This is Our American Stories. More with Amy Wright and her wonderful story after these messages. And this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Amy Wright. And we were talking with Amy about the birth of Bo and Biddy, both diagnosed with Down syndrome. She had two older children, Lily and Emma Grace. And so I think the first thing I wanted to talk about before we get to the coffee shop, Amy, is the in-between part. You, you find out these, the, these, these two children have Down syndrome. You learn from the first. The, the second's easier. How did your kids deal with this at first, and also your family and friends. Talk about the, the folks around your family and the reaction to these new children and the new challenges that they were bringing to the family, and also the opportunities and blessings. Right. Well, interestingly, you know, Lily and Emma Grace were still quite young when Bo was born, and we made the decision that we weren't going to address the fact that Bo had Down syndrome with them out of the gate, because knowing that they didn't know anything about Down syndrome just as we didn't. We just wanted them to love him and and not be scared of what they didn't know. Mm-hmm. And so they spent the first, gosh, I mean, over a year, we didn't talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome. Now, I will say, looking back on that, I kind of regret that because I think that it's really important to to talk about that and to you know, to reframe how people feel about Down syndrome and other disabilities. But again, Ben and I were kind of still in that learning curve phase and weren't sure how our girls would deal with it. What we found was, you know, they loved Bo just because he was their brother. And it didn't didn't matter, you know, when we did finally talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome, it didn't change anything. Maybe it even deepened their affection for him because they realized all that he had overcome. Um, because he was born with bilateral cataracts in both eyes and had gone through numerous eye surgeries as an infant. They were worried about things like that. They weren't worried about whether or not he had an extra copy of the 21st chromosome. Right. And then, you know, by the time we had the diagnosis with Biddy, they were, you know, overjoyed again, like Ben and I were, because we knew Down syndrome and we knew 
what we were getting into, and we knew what a blessing this was going to be to have a second child with Down syndrome. You know, looking back, I think there were a lot of friends um, that kind of grieved as Bo was born, and there was a lot of sadness and a lot of um, condolences, which, looking back again, is kind of is ridiculous, but people around us didn't know Down syndrome either, and I think they were grieving the life that they thought we weren't going to have, yep. as we did for a little while. But just any time you spend time with Bo and Biddy, even as an infant, all of a sudden your perspective changes, and you realize that it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. You know, this this child is just created perfectly and beautifully, and um, there's so much to celebrate. We have found that anybody who spends time with our family, their hearts are changed. And so, you know, and I guess kind of leading to why we opened Biddy and Bo's Coffee Shop, we wanted to multiply that feeling. We wanted other people to experience not only our kids, but everybody else that has an intellectual disability so that Someday when that parent welcomes their baby into the world and the doctor comes in and says they have Down syndrome, that they don't have that reaction Ben and I had when we welcomed Bo because they know what Down syndrome is. They've been to Biddy and Bo's Coffee. They've met somebody there that works um, that has just opened their eyes to a whole new world. Um, and so that that's kind of our greatest motivator in, in creating this coffee shop is changing the way people feel about people with disabilities. It almost sounds like a ministry for you. You know, I, I, I meet yeah. people and I tell them all the time they're creating ministries. And it doesn't have to be a church and a steeple. It's just, it has to do with love. It has to do with bringing people together. And very, very often getting people to see something they might not have seen before through that power of love. And I just, I'm still, I mean, I'm, I'm practically in tears because it's, and not sad tears, just tears of, of joy that you yeah. get watching Watching just something beautiful happen. Talk about yeah. that day-to-day coffee shop experience. Talk about what you see each day. By the way, who makes the place run? I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah. And who are the customers? Well, the place is completely run by people with intellectual disabilities. So we have employees that have autism, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. We have all, you know, all kinds of diagnoses. But they are so capable and they are hardworking and they have learned their jobs so thoroughly that they run this shop completely self-sufficiently. So someone will take somebody's order, somebody else will make the beverages, somebody else will um, call out the order when it's ready or deliver it to the table, Um, somebody might be greeting people at the door, but um, they are a well-oiled machine and... uh, you know, we have tons of regular customers that come in and have formed relationships with our team, um, you know, lots of hugs and high fives all the time. But then we also have this interesting phenomenon of people that are traveling from all over the country, some from outside our country, to come experience what's going on here because it's really special. That's always the thrill for our team, too, to see, you know, how people you know, maybe for the first time in their lives, not only are they being treated with respect, but they're they're being treated like celebrities, you know, like they <laughs> like heroes. And, yep. uh, you know, people recognize them. They come in with their cameras and they want to get pictures and autographs with our team. It is amazing how that changes the way somebody feels about themselves when they feel valued 
You no doubt about it. And what a better way to express that through this coffee shop. And you you don't have a, a drive through, and I found that yeah. fascinating. And what's the reason for no drive through? Yeah, well, we just want the the whole motivation behind this is to bring people together and to have that experience of spending time with somebody that's different from you. And so you can't really achieve that as well in a drive through Sure, there's that quick moment, but this is a, the kind of place where you come in and you have a conversation and you see walls start to come down and you see relationships start to form. And so it's very intentional. We don't have a drive through um, Of course, that would boost our business if we did, but we, we just do things differently here. And, um, you know, people will line up, people will line up out the door on the weekend just to come in here and experience this. That's a beautiful thing. Tell me uh, if you, if you can, a favorite story, uh, that our audience would love to hear, uh, from that coffee shop. Well, I mean, one of my favorites is that there, um, was a young couple that came in, uh, months ago and we're sitting at our counter and she was pregnant and um, one of our employees, Elizabeth, who has Down syndrome, was behind the bar, and she's just so loving. Anyway, she was hugging the mom and, you know, just being real sweet with them. And um, as, the, as the mom left, the pregnant young woman left, she said, um, you know, this baby we're expecting has Down syndrome, too. And, uh, you know, it still gives me goosebumps to talk about because I think that's just such a wonderful experience for her to have had to have spent that time with Elizabeth and have her fears maybe dissolved, you know, to see, I mean, I remember when Bo was born wondering, would Bo ever walk? Would he talk? You know, what would he achieve? Things that you, you start worrying about as a parent. And for, for that young mother to sit there and see Elizabeth, not only walking and talking, but holding a job and earning a paycheck and being trusted with responsibility. I mean, that had to have been life-changing for that mother. Yep, no doubt. And and with a minute or two left that we have, talk to anybody out there who is in that position right now. They're, they're pregnant. They've found out that their child's going to have a severe learning disability. Talk to that mom directly if you can. I just would say that, you know, we all have obstacles. We know as life goes on that Things can happen to us and and change us, whether that is physically or emotionally or spiritually, and it, it will come when you least expect it. The thing about getting a diagnosis when your child is born is that you're kind of handed that playing card and, and you know what you're up against, but the reality is, you know, I have all kinds of obstacles I face with my teenage daughters that don't have intellectual disabilities, but there are challenges we face. Bo and Biddy, I kind of knew because with Down syndrome, I knew what some more specific challenges would be, but it, they're no different than any other child that, that you raise. You're going to face moments when things are tough. You're going to face all kinds of celebrations, but you know the fact that God created each of us perfectly and wonderfully, and there is that He doesn't make mistakes. And, and the way that Bo and Biddy were created was quite intentional. And, um, you know, we just have to learn to embrace differences. I think as a nation, we need to do that more. You know, it's just we, we need to recognize that each of us was created perfectly and beautifully in our own way. And, um, 
and just love one another. And I think that's the greatest lesson I've learned through raising Biddy and Bo. This is Our American Stories. And if you want to see and hear more of what we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And again, thank you, Amy Wright. And what a message of love. What a story. And it doesn't get better than that, folks. This is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about music on this show, as you know. Hope you do, too. I hope you love hearing what we talk about. And we also love this day in history stories. We like to bring as many as we can every day. And, well, this segment we love because it combines both. On this day in history, in 1932, a man whose music you all know died. He was an American and a music man, and like music, existed in time, and that time was a long time ago, a time where no one thought to complain that baseball, the national game, was slow. It was a time when America dared to believe in itself. He gave it all his gifts. He was John Philip Sousa. It all began in the capital city of Washington, D.C., where John Philip Sousa was born the first son and the third child of ten children on November 6, 1854. Sousa's father served in the Marine Band for nearly 25 years. If Thomas Jefferson established the Marine Band, it was John Philip Sousa who made it a musical organization of the first rank. Sousa's personal musical genius showed itself early. Sousa's teacher was incredibly demanding and apparently no child psychologist. When the boy showed him his first composition, the teacher humiliated Sousa by hurling it away and announcing it as bread and cheese music. Sousa was eight years old. After suffering further indignities over the next two years, the boy finally one day almost used his fists on the teacher and declared that he was giving up music. Sousa's father, a wise man, said, all right and got the boy a job in an all-night bakery while he continued regular school all day. After two nights, young Sousa was totally exhausted. The father then negotiated terms between his son and the music teacher, and Sousa's musical gifts evolved in peace. When Sousa was 13, he secretly agreed to accept the offer of a circus band leader to leave home and travel with the Big Top Band. But Sousa's father, who had gotten wind of the plan, arranged something even more exciting to the youngster's imagination. The morning Sousa was to join the circus, his father brought him instead to the Marine barracks and enlisted the boy in the corps and the Marine band. But by age 20, Sousa had given up the security of the Marine Corps and set out to make his own way in the world. In September 1880, the opportunity came that would lead Sousa to his distant place in the American pantheon. He was invited to re-enlist and take over as the leader of the Marine Band. The band made its debut at the White House on New Year's Day, 1881. His great marches that would establish his renown forever were captivating the nation. 
among them the wonderful Washington Post March. He composed the Great March inspired by and named for the Marine Corps model Semper Fidelis, a Latin phrase that means always faithful. Then an enterprising promoter named David Blakely convinced Sousa to leave the Marines and go on tour with his own Sousa band. Blakely assumed financial risk and guaranteed a salary of four times over what he had been making. The band succeeded beyond Blakely's wildest expectations and lasted for 39 years. He had an uncanny knack for pleasing and surprising audiences everywhere. His range was astonishing. He was presenting music from Richard Wagner ten years before it was performed at the Metropolitan Opera, and because he knew the people wanted it, added jazz to the repertoire as well. He didn't care much for jazz, calling it music that made you want to go home and bite your grandmother. Sousa insisted that his sopranos had to be gifted, but they also had to be pretty. His instrumental soloists were superb, but they also had to be crowd-pleasers. He drove himself to the point of physical exhaustion, and in later years, when everyone believed he had every right to slow down, he said, When you hear of Sousa retiring, you will hear of Sousa dead. Between the band's success and the royalties on his compositions, Sousa soon became a millionaire. In 1910 and 11, Sousa's band made a tour of the world, but a few years later the world itself was not so harmonious. When the United States entered World War I, Sousa immediately wanted to serve. He was by then 62 years old. Still, it was arranged for him to join the Navy as a lieutenant. To feel closer to these young men, Sousa shaved his iconic beard and joked, this caused Germany to sue for peace since it made the Kaiser realize that no nation willing to meet such sacrifices could be beaten. By the 20s, Sousa had become a national asset, an institution, his birthdays bordering on becoming national holidays. Here's Sousa on his 75th birthday. I don't know whether I'm worthy of such an honor, but I'm going to accept it just the same. Isn't everyone that can get a cake on his 75th birthday. Sousa worked tirelessly for the rights of professional musicians. He, along with Victor Herbert, had helped to gain copyright recognition for music used in piano rolls and phonograph recordings, and later on, radio. He coined the phrase canned music and was the founding member of ASCAP, the first organization to protect rights and collect royalties for composers, authors, and publishers from all uses of their music. On March 6, 1932, Sousa died unexpectedly in his room in the Abraham Lincoln Hotel from a heart attack. He was eight months short of his 78th birthday. He had been right about how the world would hear of his retirement. John Phillips was dead and is buried at Congressional Cemetery in Washington, D.C. The Marine Band commemorates Sousa's birthday every year with a ceremony at his grave. He wrote Taps, and with it, an anthem for America. He wrote it, he said, on shipboard one night standing by the railing, 
looking out over the ocean as he was returning from Europe to America, with divine inspiration, he said. It came to him, totally note for note, not one of which had to be changed when finally he set it down on paper. Fittingly, the last piece he conducted the night before he died, and probably the best words I can say, is the stars and stripes forever. John Philip Sousa, This Day in History. And what a story. 62 years old, and he wants to join the Navy. Wow. You talk about loving your country. This is why I hate it when people mock people who love their country like that. You can choose not to love your country, but don't make fun of people who do. And my goodness. Talk about stepping up. Also founder of ASCAP, the writer of this music that now is just classical American music. And all of it today brought to you by the folks at Hillsdale College. A great place to go to learn everything about American history, about life, about philosophy, about the arts. And of course, always sports. You'll play it if your child goes there, if you go there. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, if you went to college and never felt like you learned enough, if you didn't go to college and want to learn some more, go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu and check out their great online courses. The C.S. Lewis course is a must. In Economics 101, I just loved it. And my favorite, the Constitution 101, I learned more taking that class than I did in three years of law school at the University of Virginia about my own country. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We bumped in with that classic Sinatra song because we're featuring stories about Frank Sinatra from the great comedian Tom Dreesen. Tom was Frank's opening act during the last 14 years of his career. They did countless shows together. They did plane rides across the country together, nights of laughter that went into the wee hours of the morning. Tom Dreesen was arguably one of the closest people to Sinatra near the end of his career. By the way, we did a terrific hour on Tom himself and his life in our American Dreamers series. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to it. And again, here's our very first episode of Come Fly With Me. Take it away, Joey. So, Tom, in in the late 70s and early 80s, you were having an awesome career, opening up with the likes of Sammy Davis Jr. and Smokey Robinson, and then all of a sudden you had the opportunity to open up with the king of show business. Tell us how that happened. 
1982, I was working at Caesars in Lake Tahoe with Smokey Robinson. I'd been touring with Smokey for a, a while. To this day, we're the best of friends. So I'm working at Caesars in Lake Tahoe in 1982, and Frank Sinatra's appearing next door at Harrah's, where I had worked many times before in the past. And I wanted to see Frank's show, because uh, I had seen him once before in a 20,000-seat arena here in, in Chicago at the uh, Chicago Stadium. And to watch him walk out on the stage, when he walked out on stage, he created more excitement walking to the microphone than most people did with their whole act. The audience was electrified by just the mere fact that Frank Sinatra was walking out. So I didn't want to miss that opening. So our shows were simultaneous. So when I came off stage that night, I bolted. I left Caesars and ran out the door, didn't even change out of my stage clothes, and, uh, and ran over to Harris. I was running into the showroom, and they knew I was coming. The maitre d' knew I was coming, so he had a place for me. So as I was rushing into the showroom, the vice president of Harris Hotel, a man named Holmes Hendrickson, was talking to some big heavyset guy with a cigar, and he saw me. And he said, Tommy, come here. And I reluctantly went over because I didn't want to miss Frank's opening. He said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. Well, I recognized the name. That was Frank Sinatra's lawyer and a very powerful guy himself. He said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen, and I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he'd heard that, you know, a million times before. And he winked at the vice president, and I caught the wink. He said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 I knew he was putting me on, you know. And I, and I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 And he started laughing. He said, I like this kid. And a week later, I got a call that they want me to work with Frank Sinatra, the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City. Were you expecting that call? No. I, I mean, I, I told my manager afterward, I said, gee, I met Frank Sinatra's lawyer. And uh, Holmes Henderson plugged me to open for him. Uh, but anyhow, I, I, I you know, in the back of your mind, you're saying, gee, this, maybe that might happen. But, you know, I didn't think in my wildest dreams that Frank Sinatra would want me to be his opening act. He had his daughter, Nancy, and, and uh, other comedians that were working with him at the time. And uh, anyhow, I got the call. Uh, worked with Frank one week at Atlantic City so uh, at the Golden Nugget. So I went there thinking, I'm going to get my picture taken with him and hang it in every bar in Chicago and say that I got to meet Frank Sinatra and got to open for him. And the second night I was there at the Golden Nugget. He and his wife, Barbara Sinatra, took me out to dinner that night after our second show. Now, tell me what the first show was like. So, you know, at the time, you already had been performing with people like Sammy Davis Jr. and all that. So I'm sure you were already over the, the nerves of performing for large audiences. But now you're performing with literally the king of show business. Were you anxious? Were you nervous? Every opening night for every artist is, 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 that you're opening for, when you're opening for their audience, you know, opening for Smokey's audience and Sammy's audiences, you, you immediately you get a feeling, and I knew how to work in front of those audiences. Now I'm opening for Frank Sinatra. I mean, that's like an altar boy serving mass for the Pope. You know, you, you know he was show business. He was everything that I ever dreamed show business was. You know, I was a little boy shining shoes in bars, and he was on the jukebox, and every bar that I shined shoes in, and every guy in that neighborhood, every neighborhood guy wanted to be like Sinatra, you know. So now I'm with him. T tell us about the first time you actually met him. He was at rehearsal. And I went into rehearsal. And his conductor at that time was a guy named Joe Parnello. And I knew Joe Parnello. So when I walked out on stage, Frank was rehearsing. I just was kind of off the side. Frank was going over some numbers with Joe. And Joe said, hi, Tommy, how you doing? And Frank said, who's that? And he said, he's the comedian on the show. And Frank said to him, is he funny? And Joe, Joe Parnello said, yeah, he's very funny, Mr. S. 
you know, and he, he smiled, you know, Frank smiled, you know. Now I really had some pressure because uh, I figured if I didn't do good, Joe would get fired too for recommending me, you know. But anyhow, that opening night, I went out and, uh, and you know, had, the, had a little bit of the nerves waiting in the wings. And then all of a sudden, when they introduced me and I walked out, I'd, I had been there before. I've done this before. And I just let that happen, you know, and, uh, and, and it was, a, I scored real well. And the second night, after, after we had done a couple of shows together, he and his wife, Barbara, took me out to dinner. And we were having dinner, and I can remember like it was yesterday, in the middle of dinner, he set his knife and his fork down, and he, I was sitting across from him. He looked me right in the eye, he said, I like your material, and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me, if you're interested. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. I said, yeah, you're kidding. And as you know, it turned out to be 45, 50 cities a year for 14 years. What was that dinner like? You know, you, you, were, you just performed for Frank Sinatra for the first two times in your life, and now all of a sudden you're sitting across the table from him. Well, the first time going to dinner with him, you're really watching yourself. But I'll tell you something funny that happened at that dinner that I, I haven't told anybody. I've told a couple of my buddies about it, but I've never told about it on the air. But his secretary made the reservations. She didn't make the reservations under Frank Sinatra because it was after our last show. She made the reservations for a party of eight. And we pull up in a limo in, in squad cars. You know, he had two bodyguards here from Atlantic City. So we pull up to this restaurant. It turns out the owner was looking out the window and he sees a squad car and he sees a limousine and he sees Frank Sinatra getting out of the limousine and he rushes to the podium there and looked and there was no Frank Sinatra on the reservation list you know and now he's panicking because there's no room in the restaurant it's packed so when Frank comes walking in with Dorothy Oman she said Dorothy says I have reservation for it now the owner said Mr. Sinatra oh my god Mr. Sinatra we don't have a table ready but we'll get something ready Frank said take your time no hurry we'll go to the bar we'll have a drink now meanwhile Frank's going to the bar, and I'm, I'm at the bar, but I look and I see the owner. He's telling people, I don't know whether relatives or friends, get out, get out, you know, get, get, get to the table. Now, the people are mad. He's taking the dishes off the table because he's going to make room for Frank Sinatra, right? Well, these people are mumble, grumble, mumble, grumble, and, you know, they went in the bar. He evidently must have been friends or, or good customers or family. And now he walks up and he said, your table's ready, Mr. Sinatra. He said, oh, my God. He said, I haven't even got my drink yet. So now we sit down, and of course the owner gets the chef out of the kitchen, and Mr. Sinatra, may we recommend this? And, and the guy's so excited that Frank Sinatra's eating in his restaurant. And Frank orders some kind of fish. Anyhow, we're sitting down, and finally the, 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 the meal comes, and the, the owner is very proud, and he sets the plate down. Frank takes like a bite, and we're all sitting there, Frank takes a bite, and he said, ah, it's too salty, and he pushed the plate away. Now, when he pushed the plate away, the owner said, said, Mr. Sinatra, he said, it's a bit too salty. And he, the, the chef's behind the owner. He turned to the owner, turns around, and he said to the chef, it's too salty. You know, he's <laughs> yelling at the chef. He, so they start recommending other things. How about this? How about that? You know, Frank said, you know what? I'm not hungry. I really am not. I probably shouldn't have ordered anything. I'm just going to have a drink here, and, and that'll be it. But the owner said, well, how about now the owner's down to like hot dogs. How about a hot dog? He recommended everything on the menu. Frank said, no. He said, really, I'm, 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 I'm not being fussy. I'm just not hungry. And the owner said, well, we're going to Now, he goes in the kitchen, and I swear it was like an old B-movie. You hear him in the kitchen telling the chef, of all the things, and the salty, and you think about it, and you hear him yelling at the chef. And, and, and you know, like the walls are shaking, you know. But it, it, sitting down at dinner with him was surreal, because, you know, I'm, now I'm, I'm sitting across from Frank Sinatra, you know. <laughs> and, and later, it always happened that way, that, that I would pinch myself sometimes. 
Because again, let me go back to this poor kid that I was, shining shoes in bars, and Frank Sinatra's on every jukebox. And here I was, years later, flying with Frank Sinatra, sitting across having dinner with him, him talking to me like I'm a peer. Good show tonight, Tommy. I like your new material. And how I wanted to pinch myself, or you know, uh, and yet I didn't want to let him know how much in awe of him I was. And there were nights I wanted to say, oh man, you were so good tonight in that particular number or that moment or even the whole show. I somehow picked up on that when I first met him that he had millions of fans. He didn't need another fan. He wanted a buddy, a pal. And I don't know what made me, maybe being a former bartender, my instinct on that. So I never let him know how much in awe of him I was. You know, but there were nights I just, I, it was surreal, you know, that I wanted to pinch myself. You know, there's another thing I picked up on him. He, he never, he was not very good at taking compliments. And my friend David Letterman is the same way. You know, David, if you said to David, gee, that's a great show. You know, great show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, how's the kids? You know, <clears throat> if I said, David, I saw your monologue the other night, that bit you did about whatever it was, it was very funny. Yeah, yeah. He said, how's the kids going? Now, what are you doing? You see any of the old guys? He would change the subject. And Frank was basically the same way. If, if you, when Frank came off stage, if I said, you know, great show tonight. Yeah, good audience. It was a good crowd, you know. Do you think that's because he was humble or because, you know, he was performing so much that when he was not performing, he just kind of wanted to detox from, you know, all things entertainment? No, I think it was kind of that, that he wasn't a bragger and he didn't like braggers. If you wanted to get, you wanted Frank to leave your conversation, start telling him how much money you got or how many buildings you own or all the great things you've done. He'd say, oh, that's terrific. That's great, Joey, or whatever you'd say, you know, and he'd walk away because uh, he wasn't one to brag himself. You know, he let us work speak for what he, what he did. And there you have it, our first and more to come. Come fly with me. And this is Tom Dreesen, the great comedian, on his reflections in his life and performance life and friendship with Frank Sinatra. Pack up, let's fly away.